All right, everybody, welcome to uh, Legal Tech Week for June 12th, 2020. This is Bob Ambrogi, and uh, we have, uh, we're being joined by a, a guest this week, uh, Rohan Pavalori, the CEO and co-founder of Upsolve, to talk about uh, an article uh, he wrote this week that was kind of in the news. A lot of people were talking about it. Uh, we also have a new panelist joining us this week, Victoria Hudgens from uh, Hey guys. Tech News, Victoria, how you doing? Welcome. Doing good. And uh, other than that, some of the some of the usual uh, the usual panelists are back. Um, let's go around and just quickly introduce each other. Uh, I mean yourselves. Uh, Molly, start with you. Hi, I'm Molly McDonough. I'm a legal affairs writer and editor and media consultant based in the Chicago area. And uh, Joe. Uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law. I'm uh, in New York. I guess now we're we should we should say where we're all from because we're all from all over the place. I guess, yeah. We are, Nikki. Nikki Black. I am the legal technology evangelist with my case law practice management software. I'm also a legal tech journalist. I write regular legal tech columns for ABA Journal, Above the Law. Daily Record. I also write for the My Case blog, and I am in Rochester, New York. So you've got one of those great titles. Who was the guy like a week ago or something who got the, had the title of "I Get Shit Done" or something like that? It, yeah, that was better than mine. I saw <laughs> that when I was like, "Steven Allen." Right, right. That's, what, uh, that's a yeah. good one for sure. And Caroline, what's your title? Yeah, yeah pretty pretty much. I get shit done too. <laughs> um, <laughs> Other people might not say that. Caroline Hill, editor, legal IT and designer, uh, aka you were drag. Um, I'm based in the UK in East Sussex, which, as I was just saying before we went live, is where Winnie the Pooh is from. And Caroline is thrilled that we're doing this earlier this week because it's not past her bedtime when she's joining exactly. us. <laughs> so, uh, what we're going to do uh, today is uh, speak with Rohan a little bit, uh, for maybe maybe 15 minutes or so, and. Uh, then go into our regular uh, roundtable uh, on the uh, week's top stories. But uh, Rohan wrote a really interesting story this week uh, uh, on uh, Law 360, uh, on basically on the question of whether unauthorized practice of law uh, rules um, promote racial injustice in this country. So Rohan, why don't you just kind of begin by summing up what you what had to say about that? Thanks so much, um, Bob, for, for having me uh, and for everyone. Uh, so, I mean, I, I'm sure this audience all knows about UPL rules in America that grant a monopoly to lawyers on providing legal advice. And uh, uh, every day in my job, uh, helping low-income families through the process of uh, accessing their civil legal rights, in particular with bankruptcy, I'm exposed to countless uh, poor people in this country that can't afford lawyers. Uh, and in our civil justice system, those people don't have the same rights as everyone else because they can't afford the lawyers to help them access those rights. And one of the reasons why uh, these lawyers are out of, uh, uh, not affordable for folks is because uh, there aren't enough helpers around. And uh, unauthorized practice of the uh, law rules as they exist today constrain the supply of people who can provide meaningful legal assistance and as a result drive up the price of uh, uh, accessing uh, uh, legal rights in this country. Uh, and I think one, one thing that's important in this discussion is to be clear that 
I'm not proposing getting rid of UPL rules in America. I believe in UPL rules. I believe in regulation. But as they exist today, uh, where only people who go to three years of law school and pass that bar exam are being able to provide meaningful legal assistance, that to me um, doesn't make any sense. I think it's obvious that we can create other alternative forms of training to vet and uh, qualify people to provide uh, legal assistance in certain areas, especially the ones I care about in poverty law. I think you're muted. Having all sorts of technical difficulties. Our Facebook Live just went dead. <laughs> um, and I'm just trying to restart that. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting that you brought that up this week because this also happened to be the week in which um, the state of Washington uh, decided to discontinue its LLLT, legal, limited license legal technician program, um, which you know, kind of fed into what you're talking about in the sense that it, it was a way for people who couldn't afford three years of law school and the time and expense and everything else to become a licensed legal services provider of a sort. Uh, I was really disappointed to hear that news. I mean, were, did you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I think that program failed for two main reasons. One, the barrier to entry was way too high. Um, and two, one of the reasons the barrier to entry was too high is because the wrong people were the regulators. Uh, if you have uh, a Supreme Court um, and a bar association as the regulators, um, uh, then it's obvious that a program like that is destined to fail from the beginning. Um, so I think that uh, those are the main two reasons why a program like that didn't succeed. And uh, But I think we learned a lot. And... Uh, in, in my industry, in technology, when something doesn't work out, you don't give up, you iterate. And the vision of the program was in the right direction. Let us create more helpers, make the barrier to entry lower for becoming a helper. Let's limit that, the, the people who can provide help to uh, certain areas of the law that are more commoditized. And uh, uh, I have no doubt that if they uh, use what they learned and iterated, they'd be able to achieve some successful outcome in the future. Does anybody on the panel have any questions or comments on this that they want to bring up? I mean, I would just echo that. I, it, what, the biggest disappointment for me was the, the abandoning of the entire project instead of um, looking at it, looking at what wasn't working and adjusting or shifting uh, to make sure that, that it was less bureaucratic, less, um, less uh, um, complicated, to work through and, and open it up so that the services were meaningful and provided uh, instead of just tossing it out the window. I thought, I thought it was working really well. I thought a lot of good lessons learned. It, it um, helped develop sandboxes in other areas that are hopefully going to continue and learn from what didn't work there. Um, and instead of abandoning it, just um, iterate like uh, Rohan said. And, and Bob, one thing that uh, I think that uh, uh, we should, I mean, we don't talk about enough when it comes to civil justice reform is the racial justice component. That's why I brought it up this week in particular. In the criminal justice reform movement, they've talked about how black men are uh, six times more likely to be incarcerated. Um, and uh, in the civil justice, we, we sort of often, talk, often talk about socioeconomic status, but class and race are intertwined in America due to centuries of oppressions and slavery. And to not talk about race when it comes to talking about um, uh, housing 
or uh, access to family lawyers, um, that is a real problem. And I really think this should be a bipartisan issue. On the right, the conservatives should, should really focus on how the existing monopoly we've given to lawyers um, is uh, anti-democratic and that it has uh, an unnecessary bureaucracy associated with them. I mean, you have the Koch brothers arguing against licensing laws across the, the country and uh, for, for, for things like hair braiding, et cetera. And then on, on the left, um, this is really an issue of social justice. And to be against UPL reform is to say that you do not believe there is a more creative way to train people to provide lower cost legal services. And to me, that uh, demonstrates a lack of imagination. If you really believe there's absolutely no way we can rewrite UPL laws um, uh, in America. Yeah. And, and, oh, sorry, you're good. Okay. Oh, um, one, one of the things in the UK, so we've obviously got a lot more deregulation in the UK. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that they've done is open up the entry to, to, the, to the profession as well, which I think is essential in, in terms of um, rec recognizing so so rather than just having one route where you you know everyone has to go in the same line which is which means means that it's less it's less likely to be diverse you know down to cost and all sorts of reasons actually if you're if you're a paralegal or if you're all sorts of different things they've now made it possible for you to move into a training contract much more easily within a corporate department or whatever it might be they've opened up all these different channels to make it much more accessible and I think that's also probably a big factor you know in terms of being more all-embracing all and, and recognizing we have lots of different statuses as well in terms of the types of you know paralegals and, and assistants etc um, so I think that and actually it'd be, I must revisit in terms of because that was fairly recent um, but it'd be interesting to monitor that and in terms of whether, what impact that has had on diversity. And I mean, we also need to, I mean, I, I, uh, unfortunately, this is kind of a wonky subject, UPL mm. reform. I think it's one of the most important topics uh, in a democracy um, that, uh, uh, I mean, accessing your rights is just, uh, it's a civil rights issue. I mean, UPL reform is a civil rights issue. And uh, uh, it's a shame that um, we haven't brought it to the forefront of uh, our, our, our national dialogue. I mean, that's something I'm obviously trying to do. Um, but uh, it really limits the amount of democracy that some people get um, because it limits who can actually afford to access their, their rights. So um, I, I really see uh, UPL reform um, in this specific moment as potentially rising in international dialogue. That's my hope. Did you get much, what kind of feel, it sounds like if obviously everyone's been talking about your, your article, has there been anything, you know, in terms of what sort of feedback have you been getting? Do you think it's always obviously been helpful in raising the issue? Has there, any, been any, has there been any kind of reaction that you think has been really helpful? Yeah, I mean, uh, I uh, am very hopeful of uh, uh, opportunities in Utah and California. Obviously, people are talking about those right now. I had a chance uh, yesterday to talk to one of the committee members of the Utah reforms that are going on and hoping to get more involved and, and trying to be helpful there. Um, I think uh, one of the challenges is, of course, um, attracting people to provide these alternative forms of legal services and figuring out a way to encourage that at scale is also an interesting operational problem that requires strong leadership in each of these states. It's not like you can just change the rules and overnight uh, all of these alternative service providers are going to show up. Um, you need to encourage that as well. And maybe that's one one of the issues with what happened in Washington, it's not you can, if you, it's not if you build it, people will come. If you change the laws, people aren't going to come. 
um, uh, and you need to encourage um, uh, alternative providers. Well, I just want, I am a little conflicted on the UPL amendment. And this is, and I come from a, and this is why. I was a public defender for years and I was on the board of Monroe County Legal Assistance for years. And the Monroe County Legal Assistance Corp provided um, people of low income with civil serve, uh, with um, access to the civil side of the criminal justice system um, and free attorneys if they qualified through that. Um, now, th so I've always felt like it's the government's responsibility to provide this, but the problem is that what has happened, um, even under Obama, because the Republicans had um, the majority in the Senate, they have essentially defunded LSC. So th that's, that's the problem. That's the way I think it ought to work. But the problem with that is that it is a political issue. And as a result, <clears throat> you have, you, you can't have access to justice. And even then, LSC did not provide incredible access to justice. It just filled a small gap, sort of, or a large gap, sort of. But, you know, at the end of the day, um, that's the problem is because it is a political issue, that access comes and goes depending on who has political power. And that's the problem with that. But I still think that that's the way a society should operate. There should be access to justice for everyone. I guess the innovation is how are we going to fill these access to justice gaps without relying upon the sway of political you know, opinion and thought. So I, I mean, I, but I still sort of fundamentally believe that's the way to do it. It's just not working because it's in. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, my, my, my view is it'd be great if everybody could have a lawyer. I see that as a political non-reality. So we need to think creatively around how to address the problem. And um, I think there's another uh, uh, a solution that's tied in my mind with UPL reform which is redesigning our courts that serve low-income people around the assumption that people won't have lawyers. I actually think it's such a crazy thing that we've designed housing court, bank, consumer bankruptcy courts, consumer debt collection courts, uncontested divorces around the assumption that people can afford lawyers when the majority of people, for example, who are filing for bankruptcy or have negative net worths that are in the tens of thousands of dollars. And how crazy is it that we, expect people to be able to pay for lawyers when they're in tens of thousands of dollars of debt and that we haven't even thought twice about how that system might be reformed. So we need to redesign our court system around the assumption that people are going to be pro se because that's the reality. Um, and and I, I feel very strongly about that as well. Well, and, and I'll just add to that, to the redesign, it's, it's more about looking at, you know, where solutions um, get bogged down into the system and a lot of it is at those earlier stages that aren't designed well and open and open enough and so if we kind of if we if the courts themselves opened up the processes to make them less complicated more accessible um, automated forms easy to use tools um, in multiple languages uh, in plain language uh, and with navigators to help people through that process then you know you, it frees up the courts and lawyers to take on that high-skilled um, work that ends up being disputed, uh, and that's a fraction of what we see actually go to court. So, but yet the courts are bogged down with hearings and status checks and these, these complex processes that just don't don't aren't necessary. And, and I, I think I want to be like clear, especially when it comes to the conversation of the last few weeks. I think, um, and my own experience over the last three or four years running Upsolve, 
is that there is a great degree of elitism um, and racism. Um, and uh, I really do feel that uh, part of the reason these changes haven't taken place is because the legal profession itself, um, there's this prestige and elitism um, intertwined with becoming a lawyer in America that um, people want to hold on to um, and uh, to the detriment um, oftentimes of uh, poor people and black people um, and brown people in this country. Well, there was a question from somebody who's watching uh, asking what changes should have been made to the LLLT program in Washington to make it useful for providers and to consumers. The rules in place sounded onerous as they were. I think that point's kind of already been made that the rules were onerous, but what, what changes should have been made to it, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think number one, um, reducing the barrier to entry. I think there's a certain amount of credit hours and work hours that nobody in their right mind, if they cared about their own feeding their own family would have uh, fulfilled. So that's number one um, uh, uh, in my mind. And then number two is, I, uh, in my understanding, is that it limited it to only one area of the law. I think it was only family law and um, opening it up because you always need to think from a, I mean, uh, a market perspective, like what is going to make this attractive for the helpers as well? Um, and uh, because they're gonna need to feed their own families. So I don't think the, the approach was pragmatic enough. Yeah. Yeah, it strikes me one of the one of the problems with limiting it to one area of law is, and this is a problem I have a lot of times when in the media business too, when people want to do a new thing, uh, the answer is not do a lower scale version of what you want, but instead to build a part of the thing you want. Uh, the the difference between I want to build a luxury car instead of starting with a bad car, you start with why don't we get in the axle business, which doesn't really give you enough to build on or to see whether or not you're succeeding. And when they decided to just be limited in practice area, like that means you don't get the opportunity to get people coming in from different vectors. You only people who are interested in that one thing. And that means it's a small enough sample. It's always got kind of destined to not get the results you want. Right. And that's, I mean, uh, and that's sort of one of my fears in Utah is yeah. uh, just like a small population. Um, there's a risk of, uh, there being an innovative solution, but just the fact that it's on an, in a state and it's in a small state. I mean, that's one of the big problems with uh, legal tech innovation in America. I mean, B2C consumer legal tech, which is specifically my field and one that I care deeply about. I mean, one of the reasons is there's so many different state by state differences. And all of a sudden when there's these UPL differences that are state by state and you subject yourself to regulators in every state. I mean, what entrepreneur in their right mind who's trying to make a big impact on the world is gonna choose consumer legal tech as the, as the place. Um, so uh, uh, I, I see just, uh, unless states are working together moving forward, there's gonna be problems in attracting um, entrepreneurial solutions. And ironically, there were proposals pending in Washington to expand uh, the Triple LT program into other practice areas. I think it was housing and uh, maybe consumer debt. There was one other one, I forget what it was. Um, and uh, that also probably would have helped address the budget issue, because part of the issue here was just the cost of running the program. And, and the more practice areas you're in, uh, the more people you can attract to be uh, participating in the program and, and the less uh, the less strain on, on the budget you would have. So, well, uh, anybody have any uh, other questions for Rohan before we let him go? Well, I really appreciate you taking the time this morning to be with us and share your share your thoughts on this. It was a really great article, really provocative. I'm, I'm glad I was really liked seeing it re 
sort of reframe the UPL issue in a way as a, as a racial justice issue because it's so often an access to justice issue, which is not, they're not separate things, but, but it's, it's a different way to think about it and look at it. And I thought that was great. Of course. And uh, just two last questions, last things I'll, I'll say, yeah. which on um, uh, one part of the article was about the lack of um, black and brown people in the legal profession. And I like to pose this thought experiment. I mean, do you think our system would exist this way if there were um, uh, uh, fewer white people and more black and brown people from specifically socioeconomically disadvantaged backgrounds? I mean, I have no doubt that we'd have a different system today if the legal profession was more diverse. Um, and that there was lower barrier to entries to the legal industry. Um, and then the, the second thing is, um, uh, and this will help me frame it for myself, uh, if I have a mom who's been sued by a debt collector and needs somebody to represent her in court, am I more likely to want her to be helped by somebody who's done a specific training module for debt collection lawsuits um, and is a social worker by training? Or am I going to want her to be um, represented by a uh, 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 a lawyer who just passed the bar and has no specific training and is Googling around to learn about debt collection. Um, and uh, it, uh, it, I think for me, that just helps me grasp that there is an alternative to our current system. Um, we just need to find it and, and, and fight for it. So thank you so much, uh, everyone. Yeah. For having thank us. you, Rohan. Thanks. And uh, you can either leave or if you want, I can change your role to an attendee and you to watch the rest of it. But uh... Thank you so much. Cool. Yeah, all right. Thank we'll you. see. You. Guess you didn't want to watch the rest of us. <laughs> I don't know. We're so fascinating. Um, so, well, all right. So, uh, we, you know, usually, uh, usually we, we talk in advance about some of the stories that we want to uh, throw around here on the roundtable. We, we haven't really done that this week, so we can surprise each other free a little all. bit, but uh, free for all. But uh, since Victoria is uh, new to our panel, let's uh, Victoria, give you the honors of uh, kicking off with uh, something that was that's, that's something in the news that struck you this week. Uh, what were you looking at? Yeah, definitely this week at ALM, um, which is the parent company of Legal Tech News, we've definitely been covering um, just how the legal industry isn't in a bubble or in a vacuum, like the protests going on in the United States and internationally, and how law firms are adjusting and responding to it. And it's been kind of interesting to hear some Black lawyers provide like how they've responded to it, and law firms saying how they want to promote diversity and inclusion. And an article that I wrote this week looked into mostly solo uh, practitioners and lawyers at um, small law firms that decided to use social media, Twitter or Facebook, to post that they would provide pro bono services to peaceful protesters that were arrested. And a lot of their tweets and posts Post went viral, and it's, and I talked to them about what's kind of been the impact of that. And mostly, they said that they received positive insights, well, positive uh, feedback from people and a few um, clients, and also kind of like ugly backlash. And I thought it was interesting, and everyone was just kind of they would say usually that it was a misconception of who they were providing services for, and some people were just saying like, "Hey, you're providing services to looters or um, the bad guys or something like that." And I thought it was interesting just talking to the lawyers about like balancing their workload and why they decided to um, offer those services and put that out there through social media. And everyone pretty much, even if they had a little bit of backlash, everyone seems 
they seemed like they still wanted to continue to do the work. And I thought it was kind of interesting. You see in the big, large law firms kind of saying like, oh, we'll put more money towards um, matters and initiatives. And these lawyers taking it out of their time to like um, provide um, pro bono services to protesters. That was kind of interesting to see a law firm's um, initial response. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. It's, I mean, it was it, it's it's always interesting to see how law how social media can be used uh, by lawyers in that way. I, I was thinking back as you were talking to the early days of the Trump administration when when there was the first wave of immigration crackdown and uh, Twitter became a, a a very powerful tool for connecting lawyers and and others who were trying to help out uh, around that and. I don't think there was the backlash at that time. It's interesting, or maybe there was. I maybe I was just tuned out to it, but it, it seemed to be much, uh, much more, you know, sort of just generally well received as a vehicle for uh, connecting lawyers and getting them to the front lines to be able to help people. But, yeah, I did kind of notice that with the large law firms, um, they definitely did make announcements to their um, staff and lawyers about, um, like, we hear what's going on and, you know, we're going to promote diversity initiatives. I know, I think it was one of the larger law firms. Um, I can't remember the firm, but he said he wants to put together like a consortium of big law and legal service providers to provide like pro bono services. But I thought it was interesting that it was the um, lawyers in the small firms, regional firms, that decided, like, hey, I'm actually going to put my resources towards helping people that are um, that were peaceful pro protesters that were arrested in their area. So I thought it was interesting. Well, it's, it's funny that, oh, you go, no, you go, you go, you go, you go. <laughs> well, it's funny that you, I just think it's funny that you even mentioned that because I just got an email this morning from, um, uh, lawyer in Western New York in Buffalo, which is an hour west of me, um, in response to my above the law article, which I wanted to talk about later. But that was, it was about um, information for protesters to help them protest and preserve the rights. And he was letting me know that he repre he represented what was willing to represent people protesters for free. And um, so I shared that I run a Rochester, New York rallies page where I share information about all the rallies. And so I posted that on there so that people that get arrested will know. But it was, it's funny they mentioned that because I, there's someone right in my area that's doing that. They wanted to make sure that I knew about it as a journalist so that I could share the news. So it's so interesting to see. And um, it's great to see lawyers willing to use their skills in this way, pro bono, to help, you know, move this effort along and support it. So I think, and I think it's great that you highlighted that in your story too, because it's, it's an important way that lawyers can make a difference. So, so what, what I think, so what I was going to say, so it seems like, you know, we, I think we said last week that <clears throat> anything's better than silence and a lot of law firms have been making statements and talking about racial diversity, which is good, but, and they're, they're talking about pro bono and, and don't, and giving more money to organizations. But I'm just wondering what you've seen in terms of, um, making commitments so obviously you did a really interesting survey of the top 50 or the, maybe that was that was the uk arm of law.com but where it showed that the statistically the top firms in terms of racial diversity had less than five percent um of people of color um within the firm and i just wondered if, if you've seen much in terms of firms really committing to metrics themselves you know in terms of diversity metrics I don't know if, sorry to put you on the spot but this is something that I'm writing right now and um, and just looking at you know whether there's any it's all very well to say right we're going to 
do more pro bono work, but actually I feel like they're not turning the microscope on themselves enough and going, right, we really need to make some serious commitments right now. You know, because I don't think it's enough, personally, just to, to donate more. I think they need to really start to make some, and we talked about this last week in, in, in the panel, um, about how we, they need short-term and long-term metrics, and I'm really struggling to find any metrics when it comes to racial diversity. Is that, am I just missing it? Yeah, that is something, like, when I first saw, like, the roundups of um, responses that law firms were making, um, mm. they weren't, and I can understand why they maybe don't, they're maybe hopefully putting together the plans of, like, how they're going to fix inward in their firms and, like, the mm. diversity issue is that um, in their firms and kind of, like, Black lawyers coming into the firm and um, feeling isolated and um, leaving the firms because they feel like it's, um, there's no way for them to um, be promoted and to be a, really a part of the firm. Um, I really haven't seen that yet. My hope would be that they would just say, we're not just going to write a check and say like, oh, we have a diversity officer and not arm them with um, actually keep, keeping people accountable, the managing management level. Um, I think that's something that needs to happen. And I think hopefully it doesn't just get it doesn't just get lost and kind of like, oh, this is a police brutality issue. It's more of a structural racism issue, and that includes working environments. And law firms, like a lot of um, job industries, haven't been the most um, welcoming for diverse talent. And I think that's something that law firms hopefully will start to say, okay, we need to be more concrete on what we're going to do and what our steps are. So I'm starting to see it. I think I saw a local firm in Philadelphia. They, I think, hired a chief diversity officer. So hopefully that's something that you see more of and they're actually able to implement concrete steps to make Black um, lawyers more feel more encouraged and welcomed and feel like they can build their book of business and feel like it's not a dead end just being an associate in big law or mid-sized law. Well, Victoria, one I, thing, one theme that I've noticed at a lot of the um, protests I've gone to is this, it's a, not just fill the quotas, but it's put black people in positions of power on the, on the firms that make the decisions or on the committees that make the decisions in the firms and provide them with promotion paths that don't just, um, so they're not just stuck at the bottom. Do you, are you aware of any firms that have actually, I mean, I'm guessing the answer is no, but I wish it was not no, but have actually provided um, commitments to do that rather than just quotas or create diversity committees? I haven't seen that yet. Um, my colleagues, maybe on the business of law, they might have a little bit closer of an ear on that topic. But um, I know um, a few months ago when um, I saw an article, I believe on the American Lawyer, where they were talking about with COVID-19 and the recession, could diversity um, strides that law firms, some law firms were making, could that go away when budgets are starting to tighten? And I read that some of the chief diversity officers in a few firms, they said no, because, you know, of course, diversity um, dipped after the Great Recession, but we think we have more concrete plans. So I think it's still up in the air what big law will do and kind of like turning the mirror on themselves and saying like, okay, this is an issue that we have. And it's something maybe that they need to look into the, like the law schools that they're recruiting from, um, making sure when they have like these mentorship programs, is it really doing anything? Are they making sure that they're putting their black associates in front of uh, clients and building their book of business? So I think it's hopefully it's something going on. I haven't read about it yet, but hopefully it's something. So, so there seems to be, there's interesting, Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. 
there's interesting stuff coming from clients. I think some of the pressure is going to come. So obviously we've talked about, there's been some stuff about Intel. So Intel has um, now said that, and, um, that by 2021, I might get that, I might have that wrong. But so, so it, it might be 22, I think, it, I think it's 21. But anyway, they, 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 and they've given a concrete diversity statistic that they expect to see a certain, this, this percentage of women and this percentage of, of um, people of color, or, um, they, they, so ethnically diverse. They want it to be at least ten percent ethnic, ethnic, ethnic diversity, um, and I think that's the right way forward. But I think that the law firms are just not doing enough, and they need pressure from the people who pay the bills. And I think that Microsoft have also put together a, a really um, quite impressive program where they have several metrics where they look at in terms of um, the, the people that are working on a on a matter, and they grade their they grade their law firms well with these metrics, and and they and they they've made these, and I think that that more clients should be doing that because actually that's where the law firms will really start to take notice if they're not doing it themselves. I think the clients have to drive drive it forward, and obviously some of them are, but I think that needs to be something that there's much more collaboration, and I I quite like to see some kind of you know group where there's a there's a way of I don't know, maybe this exists, you know, kind of collaboration where people pull, pull their ideas and pull, you know, I think there's a strength in numbers aspect of this yeah. as well. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, move on to the next one, Jolene, because I know, but both Molly and uh, Nikki have other <laughs> other programs to get to after after this is done. But I did just want to point out, I just dropped a, a link uh, uh, of an article that was on Bloomberg Law this week that looked at some of the statistics around. Uh, diversity in the legal profession, pulling from uh, U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics data and a few other sources, uh, but you know it's it's pretty much as as bad as you would think. I mean, it's uh, it says something eighty like percent of those in legal occupations, which is a pretty vague term, uh, are, are white, and ten point six percent are black, and uh, Asians are eight point two percent, and then it has some other statistics from some other sources as well. So. Um, Molly, I, I know you have to uh, get off early, and I wondered uh, if you want to uh, be next up and uh, talk about what uh, what was in your mind this week, on your mind. This uh, week. Sure, sure. So um, offline, we've talked a little bit about this. I The, the um, University of Pennsylvania, their Actionable Intelligence for Social Policy program uh, released a new toolkit uh, for, this is new for me, um, Centering Equity. Um, I, I'm big into, I understand putting uh, um, equity and diversity in context uh, and racial um, in terms of data, um, but their, their focus uh, in this report is on centering, uh, which is really based on understanding where the data, how the data is collected and how bias is worked into the data collection at its root. Um, and so I thought it was really, one of the things I like about it, um, they haven't promoted it much because it came out right in the middle of all the, um, the, the uh, demonstrations and protests. Um, it takes a really strong stand on race. And I, I thought that was, I thought that's important. I thought it's, it actually is more timely now. Um, this isn't in response to the demonstrations. They've been working on this report for two years. Um, and I, in one of the reasons I think it's important now is that because of the pandemic, we've seen so many organizations, especially government entities uh, and courts, uh, starting to really very quickly implement uh, technology solutions and data-driven solutions. And this is at a critical time to take a look at 
when you're using data to drive decision making that it uh, is is um, that you understand where the biases are. It's not that it can't be useful, but you have to make sure that you understand and as they put it, center <laughs> your data um, so that you're not using it in ways that uh, are punitive or um, or lead to unequal treatment and unequal um, distribution of benefits, say, or um, uh, or in the case of law enforcement, um, you know, penalizing African Americans and minorities because um, because the data has a lot of uh, racist um, uh, history and how it was collected. So I just thought that was great. It's a it's a really helpful, useful toolkit, really long with a cross section of, of stakeholders from um, government and uh, um, educational institutions. If you happen to have the uh, URL for that, the article, the URL that was in an email that you sent around about that, for some reason, isn't working for me. I'm getting a 404 message when I click on it. I yeah, I think I actually I talked to one of the authors yesterday, and I think they um, it, same for me. They took it down briefly um, because they found a typo. Oh, <laughs> so uh -oh. if, if above the law did that, we'd never get anything done. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a, there's there's the toolkit is a they have a, all this background, but their toolkit is a PDF. So <laughs> yeah, interesting stuff. But, but true. <laughs> yeah. Uh, any comments on that, or do you want to move on to the next? No, I just like you. I just love, I'd love to see that. So yeah, if you, yeah. I'll, um, I'll try and dig out your, your link. All right. I see she's put a link up. Uh, and Nikki, I know you also have to go uh, do uh, what three three hours of uh, speaking this afternoon. So uh, we'll, well, let's warm up your. Uh, Voice. <laughs> um, well, what I, I've really been focused on a lot is, and I wrote about this for my Above the Law column this week, is the um, intersection of law and technology in terms of surveillance and the use that law, uh, law um, the way law enforcement is using technology at the protests and the different methods and um, tools that they're using to surveil protesters, to um, gather information, to arrest um, protesters and also alleged looters. Um, and it's amazing the amount of um, tools that they're using. You know, there's the physical tools, there's the drones, there's those poles where they, uh, when I organized the post-inauguration rally in downtown Rochester, at that point in 2016, they had these poles where they had cameras on top of them. So rather than having law enforcement right there at our protest, uh, there were one or two officers, but they had those poles to make sure nothing went south. Um, with cameras on them. Now they have drones. So when I was at a Black Lives Matter rally last weekend, um, there were a number of drones and one of them came down very low once we all settled in one spot um, and really annoyed a lot of the protesters because it was pretty low and invasive. But in addition to those, they're also using, you know, license plate readers. They're using social media to try and track protesters and get information. They're using um, uh, other sorts of... Um, data from cell phones that they collect um, with some sort of tool. I wrote about it on uh, the above the law post. It, the idea was to give protesters an idea of the tools that law enforcement is using, how to lock down their phones. That's another thing that's really important is learning how to secure your data, your information, how to stop um, sending information, geolocation data from your phones that might help law enforcement. Um, and, and my perspective is more help them 
unlawfully exert, you know, uh, unlawfully um, restrict the right to protest. That to me is the most important thing. You know, they're restricting the right to protest. It's our constitutional right. And so I think it's important to secure your data so that they don't get information unlawfully from you that can be used against protesters. And so I provided that information. Um, but I, if they, you know, I think it's that all this surveillance they're doing in the militarizing of the police is it's unbelievable to attack people that are peacefully protesting about a really important issue. And so and the other thing I just wanted to mention was um, I linked to a video. Um, we have a lawyer in Rochester who represents protesters. And I linked to a video that we'd recorded right after the election where he provides information to protesters about your rights when you protest and how to protest lawfully or at least understand what that means and understand when you're crossing that line and make cross that line knowingly. And um, I also linked to, uh, I just had a birthday and I, um, for the first time I ever did a fundraiser for the bail project, which um, it's, it's intent is to, um, pro, you know, address the biased use of bail in the criminal justice system by bailing people out. And so um, I've raised almost $3,000. I just wanted to throw this pitch in there. I'm um, like 175 off for my $3,000 goal. It was initially a thousand, but I raised that in about four hours. So I pushed it up to 3000, but I'm still a little bit short of that. So there's a link to that fundraiser if you want to donate to it. It goes right to the bail project. I'm just the go between through Facebook. But I just, I just think it's super interesting, all the tools that the police are using to prevent people from exercising their first amendment right to protest. And it's well, a little offensive. Yeah. <laughs> and also to go back to what, what, what Victoria was talking about a little bit, there was a story this week that suggested they're also watching your Twitter accounts. There was a story out of Portland, Maine that, that uh, where somebody had posted on Twitter about, uh, you know, sort of in favor of defunding the police and uh, next thing you knew, the police were showing up at his door with an arrest warrant over some misdemeanor uh, graffiti charge or something. And uh, they, some of the, some of what they said to him suggested that they had, in fact, uh, been been aware of what he'd been posting on Twitter. So who knows? Well, the other really important aspect of that is, which I hadn't thought about the, at the first protest I went to, but the second protest I was aware of it is blurring faces out of the photos you take to show on social media. You got to go, Molly. Um, uh, Bye, Molly. Bye, Molly. See you next week. Um, but uh, the in Signal offers a tool to do that, the Signal messaging app, right. so that you can, yeah. before you post to social media, blur faces out of the images. Yeah. Vicky, did you say you've posted a link to your fundraising? I can't see it on the. You're going to post it in the chat. Oh, I'll do, do a gratuitous plug. <laughs> I'll link to above the law. Um, and at the very yeah, end, the way to do it. I'll link to my fundraiser too. <laughs> <laughs> I'll link to the fundraiser and above the law in um, the chat momentarily. Yeah. You know, uh, while, uh, while she's working on that, I'll uh, share my favorite. Um, the government is monitoring your Twitter story. Uh, I don't know if people saw this, but a, I believe a, I believe a journalist uh, tweeted something out saying, if I mysteriously disappear, this is why. Um, and the, what he had done is reached out to the official CIA account saying that he had information on the communication devices that Antifa uses to keep in contact with each other. Uh, and they needed to follow him so he could DM them. Uh, the CIA official account immediately DM. Uh, followed him uh, and asked for the stuff over direct message. And he responded, yes, they are 
utilizing some sort of technology called Updog, and they responded with, what's Updog? And he said, nothing, what's up with you? Uh, to the official CIA account. Uh, and he posted it all on Twitter. And uh, that I don't use the word hero very often, but... <laughs> That's good. That's good. You got any other stories this week, Joe, that you want to talk about? Yeah, I mean... Um, there's been a lot of random stuff like that. Uh, we have dealt with more uh, bar exams forcing grant, uh, applicants to sign w legal waivers uh, that they uh, won't hold them responsible when they all get COVID after packing into a convention center in July. Uh, so that's a thing. Uh, we've gotten more statements from law firms, uh, as we were talking about earlier, all these uh, social media statements, which uh, kind of to go on to that. Uh, one of the trends that we're noticing of those statements is that it's going to spark some of what on Twitter is being called like the, the hashtag this you um, backlash of people who have had negative experiences with those firms go going, really, where, where was this all this love of racial justice when I got uh, treated the way I did. Uh, and that that's developing. And it's 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 going to be an inflection point, I think, for a lot of the firms, uh, because I feel, especially with issues like this, that a lot of firms, and by firms, I'm just going to generally say white people, have a <laughs> sense that a sense that these issues don't exist on a spectrum. They feel as though if I've said I'm for racial justice, that's the end of the inquiry for me. Uh, I I've done it. I'm you know there's can't be anything else I can do better uh, than to say that. And I think it's going to be, and when they're called out for other stuff, they tend to go insular and uh, defensive and lash out at the idea that something's wrong. And I think this is the next inflection point that these firms are going to face is when they, after these statements of support, they get flagged for various microaggressions and so on that they've done over the years, are they going to become defensive or are they going to remain open to that conversation about what they can do better? Uh, and so that's the other trend that we've been following throughout the week. Um, yeah, it, I, we've been all over the place this week. Yeah, been a busy week. Yeah, uh, but those are the, the two that are kind of relevant to this conversation. I don't think anybody cares about my Michael Flynn coverage, so. <laughs> Somebody does. Right. It's, it, it has fewer legal tech uh, angles to it. Yeah. Um, any comments? Oh, Michael on Avenatti, did you follow that? No. Avenatti, now uh, he was banned from using his computer because uh, he couldn't have anything that connected to the internet. And the <laughs> government filed this really bitchy uh, motion saying, oh, it looks like he participated in the drafting of some of the filings in his own defense. That means he must have had a computer. Uh, we need him, like, yeah, and they tried to get an inquest going, and the judge was just like, give him a computer, put <laughs> software on it so he can't go on the internet, just get this out of my face. But uh, that, that was a tech, tech story of the week. That's interesting. Yeah. All right, well, how about Caroline? How about you? What do you got this week? Um, yeah, so, well, I've, it's been a mixed week, actually. So, so um, I might just do a little short 
convention of a few things. So one, um, I wrote again about Zoom, about new vulnerabilities that have been identified. And, and what was more interesting, I think, than my story, which was just looking at um, something that Cisco Talis um, found and wrote about um, in terms of web security vulnerability, was some of the feedback that I got after it. I got quite a lot of people coming back to me saying, what have you got to get Zoom, right? And, and um, someone's... <laughs> Someone was like saying, you, you, you've got an agenda to try and promote teams or whatever. What, what? And I was like, actually, well, that's interesting because you have to listen, you know, perhaps, perhaps. I, um, and they were saying, well, look, you know, but when I, I'm, quite a few people actually have come back to me and said, I don't think there's enough positive um, coverage of Zoom and, and the amazing stuff they've achieved. We've always talked quite a bit about Zoom, I think, um, in the few weeks that we've been talking. I think actually Zoom's probably come up disproportionately, you know, often. But um, I think that's an interesting thing that there's... Um, the, the, the reaction was more of interest to me that you know people were saying you know we, we really think that this is saving our life you know and and what, what have you got against it and I'm like okay we're not against it just fix you know and I, and I should I should mention that the thing the thing <laughs> the thing about the um, article was that um, the whole point of the article was that you need that that, that although Zoom um, is doing its own patches um, that it's you can't just rely on that that you need to make sure you're using the latest version of the software and that some assumptions that the user that Zoom is facing all of the stuff when actually you need to make sure you're on 5.0 you've got the latest or else or else the vulnerabilities or else you, you won't be protected from the vulnerabilities which kind of goes without saying but um, perhaps not obvious to everybody um, there's a new app to help um, people get back to the office which is like a kind of space um, design um, type app from Flipplit which, which is really interesting um, they, they can kind of create zones on, on different floors and work out who's in, who's out, and, and you, you log in um, uh, with, a, with, a, with a, you know, you, you sort of scan, scan a QR code to get in, and, and um, there's a lot of interest in that from law firms who, although obviously some people are saying they're going to continue to work from home, they're obviously now really working out how the hell they, 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 they <laughs> achieve meaningful social distancing, and also monitoring in terms of if somebody gets sick so then they'll have they're now into the weeds of really thinking about the, the you know, how they're actually going to achieve this and it's quite a lot of interest in that um, there's quite a lot of movement which is interesting and you know, people taking up new jobs which is quite an interesting time that's you know, that's to me you know i think that we're kind of getting into the you know lockdown is normal it feels like there's a bit more movement in the jobs market people are being yeah. promoted obviously there's um you know, there's still a lot of people being furloughed, and obviously, you know, that there's. I'm not suggesting that things are better, but actually, there's a lot more movement. You, you're agreeing, Bob. You, you've obviously seen them people yeah. yeah. Just, just, just today, we saw Haley Altman, the announcement of Haley yeah. Altman moving up at Latera. So. Which is great. And I, yeah, as I said, great. all her karaoke crew will be a fan of that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, it's great to see. It's a thing, you know, it's nice to see some positive, you know, it's been some positive, you know, there's been some IT director moves um, in the yeah. UK. Tony McKenna's left Gowlings to join Hal Kennedy. Um, um, yeah, no, it's, it's been, yeah. it's been, it's been, it's been, it's felt like quite a normal week by COVID sadness. Yeah, yeah. I thought the uh, one uh, piece of news this week that kind of uh, uh, w was more consistent with the times, is, but something we all saw coming was was that uh, Ilta Khan will in fact be virtual. I mean, I think we all knew that was going to happen, uh, but they they made it official this week. Um, and uh, promising uh, bigger and even better in all virtual environment. Um, one of the big conferences of the fall that we haven't yet heard from officially on that is, is the CleoCon conference, uh, which I know, Nikki, is one of your favorite conferences to go to. <laughs> <comments>. Joking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but um, 
I was uh, I was on a webinar with Joshua Lennon from Clio this week, and uh, he did say there's going to be news coming very soon about the state of the uh, ClioCon conference. So I'm guessing we're going to hear shortly that they're going to decide to have that be virtual as well. But but I'm seeing actually in in uh, in Europe uh, that some conferences are now trying to start back up as physical conferences for the fall. There's one in in uh, Prague in September that I was. I'm scheduled to speak at, I guess. Uh, I, I don't know whether I can get there, but um, uh, they're they're going to make a go for doing a, a live physical conference. So, I don't know. when do you? I was just talking to someone else about this. When do you? Th when would you personally be comfortable going to a conference like that? I, I mean, granted, it's fluid, right? Like you never know what it's going to be like. But I feel like I'm not there anytime soon. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm wondering about like legal tech and tech show next year. Like, I'm wondering if those are going to go forward. What do you guys so, think? So I'll say this, and obviously you don't know uh, what, what all's going on, but I have been, a few people have told me that uh, who work in government adjacent jobs uh, that CDC officials are briefing them that they should plan on February being all clear, um, that they believe they will, that, the CDC, for what it's worth, reportedly is saying to uh, officials that they expect vaccine distribution to begin in December and to be all clear in February. So that's that's what the CDC is yeah, telling oh. like universities and stuff. Oh, so who knows whether that's true? Obviously, they can be wrong, um, and I'm, you know, that's just reportedly what I'm hearing from you from the academic sector, but. Yeah, I went to a restaurant last night for the first time in three months or something. So no that was way. exciting, and it was had to sit outside and it was cold as hell because it was raining and uh, <laughs> they had a roof over us. But it was the yeah. But they're open. That's amazing. We're, we're it just just shut. this week. Yeah, just this wow. week they opened some restaurants for only outdoor outdoor seating uh, in Massachusetts where I am. So. so we're outdoor you? seating. We're outdoor seating for now, but I think we're scheduled. My area is scheduled to go indoor like next week. I think. Yeah, Amazing. I think upstate New York, it's to today. Yeah, I think, yeah, you guys are today. Yeah. We're July, I think. They've said not till sometime in July that pop yeah. and But Bob, what did you make of Filters, um, the event? I mean, I thought it was interesting. I'm, I'm really so fascinated to see how that, that they've obviously talked about lots of social events online and creating, you know, trying to, trying to emulate some of the stuff that we know is so brilliant about Ultra in terms of the networking and the social stuff. I'm just going to, I'm really, I can't, I can't wait to see how they do it, you know, but I, it, it's some of the stuff that they were talking about um, in terms of the drinks, the, the taste, I think they even mentioned something like tasting, did they? Or maybe, I made, maybe I made that up, but like all these kind of social things, and I'm like, how the hell are we going to achieve that online? I, I hope I hope that we can, because everyone's going to be really sad not to go ahead, but I just Dio. can't. Dio. <laughs> Dio. Yeah. Oh, maybe I mean, I'll talk about this another week, but. Yeah. I mean, the few, the few oh, yeah, virtual conferences, the ones I've been to, it's been, uh, the, <laughs> the whole networking part of it has kind of a, been a fail so far. Uh, the, the presentations are good, and it's nice that you're able to open it up to a lot more people who wouldn't be able to attend the physical conference. But uh, as, as a networking event, it's, it ain't the same, i got to say. And it's great. I mean, that's what's so fascinating is that I haven't seen with other conferences that they haven't really promised that, you know. But I, love, I, I actually missed what you're saying, Nikki. You're talking about TA, which we still don't really talk about, which is when you have your own avatar, obviously, on this platform. Yeah. 
which I haven't yet well, played around with. But. Yeah. We didn't get to, we actually had a question on Twitter about uh, what is the preferred way for companies to present a potential story or get a new product solution covered? And I guess in other words, how do you like people to pitch stories to you is basically the question. But we are running, uh, we are going on an hour here and I think we need to uh, call it quits. Uh, so maybe we can make that top of list for uh, next week and and uh, give Jason an answer to his question that he posted on Twitter. Well, but uh, yeah, sound good. Sounds good. Sounds good. Yeah, sounds I know everybody's good. good. All right. Well, thanks, thanks uh, everybody thanks. for participating again. Thanks everybody in the audience for listening, and we'll be back uh, next Friday at a time to be determined. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Early. All right. You like early? Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Right. Hi, everyone. Nice to see everyone. Thanks, guys. Nice to Bye. Bye, guys. Bye.